Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Chris Hayes, the host of All In with Chris Hayes, which airs weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. He's also the host of the podcast, Why Is This Happening? He's been covering the Trump administration since it began and recently reported from the border, part of his extensive coverage of the child separation crisis. Chris Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. So I wanted to have you on to ask a couple uh, larger picture questions, which I can sense from your television show and your podcast and your Twitter feed that you've been thinking about, but um, hopefully have not formulated in words yet. Um, where, where do you think we are as a, as a country right now after uh, – <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm psychological. Yeah, finish it. Yeah, uh, no, no, I'm doing we? a psychological analysis of, uh, of you and what you're wondering about. And so – where do you think we are after uh, 18 months of this? I know you and I both follow the news every day kind of obsessively. And so just to take a step back, um, when you do, where uh, where where are we, Chris? I think that the president has successfully solidified entirely his hold on the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Um, I think that he has a very – he actually has a kind of preternaturally astute sense of what binds the Republican coalition together and has been very ruthlessly transactional about keeping that coalition together and bound to him. He also, I think, has a very good sense of what actually fires the bellies of the base of the party, uh, which is essentially racial anxiety about demographic threat and and uh, you know the, the future of white – America as a white country fundamentally. And he has sort of mixed all that together to solidify the the Trump coalition as a coherent entity. And, you know, th- that's a that's a formidable thing. It was it was formidable enough to get him elected president, though, in a somewhat fluky way. He lost three million more votes. It's it's still the case that he remains unpopular despite macroeconomic indicators that would predict a higher level of popularity for the sitting president. The solidification of the Trump coalition as a distinct and cohesive coalition, uh, which it it is. I mean, it's 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 basically the Republican coalition put together in a somewhat different way. I think um, has also inspired solidification of the opposition, which you're seeing in the sort of dynamism and also. Uh, intra-coalitional fights happening in the in the Trump opposition in the center left. So things in a weird way are kind of clearer uh, and the stakes are higher than they've ever been. And the outcome remains undetermined from a sort of political governance standpoint to me. But wait, what you just said seems like on its face at least a little bit of a paradox, which is it solidified the opposition, but at the same time it's brought up cleavages within the center left. Yeah, well, I guess what I mean by that is that the I think the opposition – here's what I would say. I think the op, the coalition of Trump opposing forces in the country know who they are. <laughs> like the lines are drawn, but what they, what they are, what they stand for and what they will lead with and what they will politic on remains in fervent dispute, if that makes sense, right? So like I think that the, 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 the kind of parts, the halves of the country as it were, one being slightly bigger than the other – uh, which is the Trump opposing forces, uh, are, are sort of know which side of the line they're on, but the but the the kind of intensity of the debate is about what that what what those politics are, what that represents um, in a kind of broad sense, and I think that's a you know I think both a necessary but but a brutal and continuing debate. 
And do you, well, l- l- before I, before I ask you that, l- l- let me, let me just sort of talk about the solidification of the Republican Party. The fact that it has been able to solidify behind this guy who uh, on many things goes along with the party line going back to the Reagan years on on other things departs, but seems to sort of uh, get away with it. I mean, and, you know, we'll see what happens with NATO this week, but he could end up doing something with NATO that will, would, you know, would have shocked people who were supporters of the Republican Party 30 years ago and pay no political consequences within his party. So it, it's it's both of those things at once. Does, does this make you think that essentially something about partisanship in America that, you know, and I, I don't want to get into a blaming both sides for this, but that, that essentially we've gotten to this point where both sides have solidified so much that when one side is taken over by someone like this, it, it sort of highlights the danger of living in a partisan era? I would say there's three factors. That's one factor. So so the basic kind of um, polarization where you sort of define yourself as a sort of an opponent to the enemy's camp or the, you know, the rival tribe's camp. Um, I, I think there's some of that. And I think that, that there's some of that on both sides. A lot of that, it's, it's a very intensely human impulse. It's cultivated by lots of institutional features of the political landscape. It's definitely something that applies as a kind of psychological and sociological effect to liberals as well as it does to conservatives. So that's one thing that's happening. There's an asymmetry that's profound, which is that it's the conservative coalition that nominated and elected Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and there is no corollary for that uh, on the the other side. Uh, that's because there are particular pathologies uh, to the way that conservatism in America works. One is uh, the centrality of essentially a white racial grievance, uh, bigotry, and uh, you know ethnic rivalry uh, as, a, as a sort of vital and defining feature of what the coalition does. There is the fact that the conservative media is has a bunch of particular attributes that I think are particularly insidious, um, particularly Fox News, which is um, there is no corollary to Fox News anywhere in any media landscape of any sort of subgroup of people the way there is for particularly older white conservative men. And so that's factor number two. The, 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 the particularities and pathologies of American conservatism that have developed over a long period of time and which are have been pointed out by all sorts of people on the center right, uh, you know, that, that, that's a big part of the never Trump literature is, is talking about how this moment was produced. Um, you're, right now, a great example is just watching conservatives fall in line behind the idea that like former wrestlers are lying about Former wrestlers who are Republican Trump voting, Jim Jordan supporting former wrestlers from Ohio who go out of their ways to say how much they love Jimmy and he's a good guy. But that like, yeah, he knew that the the doctor was fondling them um, to watch the epistemic machinery of conservatism work to produce a situation in which politician after politician is coming forward to saying these guys are all liars. Um, and that's. There, there's a whole institutional machinery that exists on the right that produces the ability to do that, that produces the ability to um, have Roy Moore as a candidate, to have uh, a guy in a swing district in New Jersey who approvingly tweets a link, uh, posts a link to a white supremacist article about how black people are innately inferior. All of that is is working to produce an asymmetry and a particularity to conservatism that produces Donald Trump and that produces the ability for him to cement the coalition. Right. And it seems like there's a danger in itself when your coalition is itself made up of one dominant ethnic group. 
which is sort of uh, which obviously explains the racial resentment in some ways or, or why the party of racial resentment is going to be largely white. But it also seems like sort of partisanship wielded with a group of people who share this common characteristic has certain dangers that um, a partisanship on the other side will never have or is less likely to have. Yeah, I think that's partly true. I also think the third the third thing I would say is that Trump is actually extremely canny and uh, intuitively about what the party is and what it's not. And he recognizes the reason he won the primary is because he recognized he was untethered from the orthodoxy of Ryanism. Uh, that is has essentially no dom- domestic political constituency. Uh, you know, it is extremely instructive that none of the Republicans uh, running in competitive races are running on the tax cuts. None of them. <laughs> uh, it is extremely instructive that uh, you know Donald Donald Trump knows that what the what motivates the base is a sense of uh, a sort of populist victimization and and grievance. And not some whatever Ryan's vision of the you know the of, of uh, privatizing Medicare and tax tax cuts on capital gains. Stay tuned for more from my interview with Chris Hayes after a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to ask you about the the child separation crisis. There have been certain moments in the last 18 months. I think of that. I think of Charlottesville and the president's response to it, where it sort of felt like a giant chunk of the country, even beyond the liberal base, had sort of risen up and expressed its disgust, and it dominates the news, and there's pushback on the president and his administration. And if you think what's going on, like speaking up for white supremacists or uh, separating children from their parents is disgraceful, it feels really good because it feels like we're pushing back. We, people who don't like this, are pushing back on this guy in some way. And then over time, it sort of it happened with the Muslim ban, too, at the beginning of the administration. And then over time, it kind of, um, you know, things continue. Maybe they get slightly better. People kind of forget about them. Hopefully, there's some policy change to different degrees you see with the child crisis, which is still ongoing, or with um, banning people from mostly Muslim countries. And so I'm wondering sort of um, what you think those moments tell us about where the country is in the sense that it it shows that there's something in the country that is repulsed by what's going on. But it also in another way doesn't give me much hope that in the long term, people who are worried about these things are able to fight them in a sustained way. Yeah, that's that that well articulates my (laughs) my feeling about it. I mean, it's heartening. Um, the, you know, the, the reaction to the child separation policy was heartening, the, the, the widespread condemnation, the, the polling on it, the activism, the people taking the streets. Um, and that continues. I mean, we should say that there is sustained action on this. Um, the, the, the kind of moving onness that I think you're identifying, um, and, and I think from a kind of elite perspective, particularly in a sort of media perspective, a desire to move things back to equilibrium. And it happened It happened in, in two cases in very clear ways uh, that I think are, are quite related, which was Charlottesville was followed by a, a, a whole news cycle about Antifa and leftist violence. Um, and 
child separation was followed by a whole new cycle about civility. And in both cases, what you're you're seeing is kind of a gravitational pull to like get back to the middle to sort of re- restore equilibrium, to kind of come back to something that looks like normalcy, almost in a kind of embarrassed way after after everyone sort of followed the natural, correct conscientious impulse in the face of, for lack of a better word, evil, uh, to condemn that said evil, and and it's that. That instinct is a is a is a troublesome and dangerous one. Um, and do you and, think it's media driven when you say instinct? I think it's I, you know I, I don't know. I mean, media is such a sloppy term, obviously, and I hate it when people use it as a stand-in. Uh, you know, uh, mainstream, ostensibly objective, um, large audience media organizations. Let's say. Uh, I think that it's a combination of instincts. I think it it reflects a way a lot of people think a lot that are outside the media. I think it it's um I think there's a certain kind of let's say people of a certain elite um professional educated class that are over are disproportionately represented in in those media organizations have a kind of desire for a sort of normalcy and equilibrium uh, and and worry about sort of extremism in response to extremism, which I think is a, a not a crazy worry, by the way, <laughs> um, that 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 ends up really manifesting in intense and acute ways in the wake of particularly egregious violations of basic core matters of conscience. And so, but but again, what you're what you're talking about is an elite-driven phenomenon. It's not sort of American people feeling like, well, we've expressed our revulsion at X, and now we need to sort of go back to normal. I, you know, I, again, like American people is just an impossible general generalization. People, people <laughs> like, in America, people I mean, in America feel right. Like, I mean, it's yeah. like people. You know, it, it, like there's a lot of people who are checked out. I mean, you know, right. ha- half the country's checked out, right? Like, <laughs> um. You know, and then then half the country is paying a lot of attention, and then of that half of the country is paying a lot of attention. Maybe, you know, a third of that half—that's a sixth of the country—are like kind of part of the base, right? And they have different demographic profiles in in interesting ways. But it's like the so so it's hard. It's it, you know where the sort of you know obviously there's a long literature on what public opinion means, right? And debates and Mencken and Dewey and all these folks about what what how you sort of even think about it. In some ways, it's harder to think about now than I think it ever has been for a variety of reasons that have to do with both polarization and kind of fracturing of of media and all these reasons. So I don't know. All I know is this. I know that there's there's sort of there's grass. There's a lot of grassroots activism. There's a kind of elite media conversation. And then there's a whole bunch of different flowering dimensions of conversation that happened between and around those um, and characterizing any of them are are hard. But I think that what you have seen to sort of get back to the original point is that while there's a kind of elite media instinct to kind of pull back towards that center or find that equilibrium or sort of say, well, yes, it kidnapping children and referring to them in terms that compare them to vermin that must be extinguished is wrong. Uh, it's also bad to uh, ask someone to leave your restaurant. Uh, and and that that instinct 
that instinct does not penetrate to what you might call the Democratic Party base or the progressive base or the sort of center left coalitional activist class right now, which isn't, you know, is normal people, for lack of a better word. I mean, these grassroots activists, people that call, make phone calls and knock on doors who don't feel that way, who feel like the country's in a national emergency and who actually have displayed an, an ability to endure in that feeling and channel it, you know, as demonstrated by a whole lot of sort of outside observable empirical metrics. The, it's, the most interesting thing about the civility debate to me was how – was the way it showed the divides in the Democratic Party actually. And I think a lot of the debates Democrats have been having and liberals have been having really map nicely onto the civility debate, not in terms of content, but just in terms of the way you saw people, especially older members of Congress, people in the Clinton administration and Obama administration respond to sort of, with sort of outrage or shock that Sarah Sanders would be asked to leave a restaurant. And then uh, younger people, people online, um, you know, political activists in disgust that that those were people's – that that was people's responses to it. And so that to me did kind of highlight some of the things you were talking about earlier about the divisions within the left. Yeah, I I think – I mean I think that's a kind of temperamental one that that has to do with – you know, partly has to do with proximity to power, right? So partly it's can you imagine yourself as Sarah Sanders? Partly has to do with kind of norms of professional class liberalism, for lack of a better word, which is that – and you actually see this – this plays out in all kinds of ways. There, there's a sort of fascinating sociological process of elite formation that is asymmetrical between liberals and conservatives as well, um, which is that by and large, uh, um, the folks that get produced as the sort of elite and powerful liberals in America – um, and I, you know, I, I went through this process as well. I mean, went, you know, I went to a magnet public school. I went to a, a, a Ivy League college. I, you know, have a, a, a large platform, so I'm not exempting myself from this. Um, I think are sort of inculcated with a bunch of sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of class norms um, that conservatives have a very different experience with because often conservatives inside those institutions view themselves as a kind of aggrieved minority that is sort of um, much more prone to have to argue all the time, want to argue all the time, be fighting all the time. So I think there's a kind of interesting sort of sociological story about the people that end up being the sort of powerful people at the top of the conservative coalition versus at the top of the liberal coalition or center left coalition versus center right coalition and how they think about civility, conflict, extremism in very different ways. Yeah. and But, you know, the, these things about, you know, well, it's a matter of tone rather than substance, which we were saying about the Democrats, Democrats and liberals responses. I mean, that's the way, though, that parties kind of operate, right? You make choices based on things like that as much as a party platform. Um, and I think that that's sort of going yeah, for, forward. Yeah, I think yeah. that's true. I mean, the other thing I, I just also just felt like that everybody just memory hold the entire Tea Party, which, you know, involved a lot of screaming. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't know what's what's civil is 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 standing a few feet away from a congressman saying, I refuse to let you put down my son. Don't put down my son, referring to your son in a wheelchair who you believe the congressman is going to vote on a law to euthanize. Um, is that civil? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to characterize it. But that was like the emotional core of a lot of the Tea Party. Right. Um, and, you know, that 
that all got weirdly memory hold in the, in this discussion about civility. We'll get back to my conversation with Chris Hayes right after this. Last question, then I'll let you go. Um, how much do you think Democrats and liberals should focus on the structural disadvantages they're under in terms of the Electoral College in two of the last five presidential elections, the Senate and its role, um, gerrymandering and the fact that um, liberal voters tend to be tend to congregate in big cities, et cetera, and it, just things like that, as well as political issues. Is it is it is it important that people on the left or center left in American politics start thinking of these issues as just yes. as important as anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's another asymmetry. I think this the, the the right has done partly. I think because the right has less focus. Like, I think the right, you know, almost by definition, there's like less things they want to do as sort of affirmative government programs, right? When they take office. <laughs> um, it's not like, oh, well, we want to, you know, I mean, what did the Democrats do? They, they they spent two years in a tremendous amount of political capital passing this universal health care bill. Like that sucked up the oxygen for other stuff. And and whereas if you're a Republican administration, that's not the first thing you want to do, although they did try to repeal it and fail um, or sort of fail. But I think, yes, I think like thinking about, I basically think that you have to think about democratic equality like democracy and equality that th th those two things like democracy which itself has a kind of equal egalitarian ethos right one person one vote like democracy pushing for democracy that means like fighting things like you know uh the electoral college <laughs> uh the uh gerrymandering uh, voter disenfranchisement um expanding the electorate passing things like automatic voter registration in states that have unified democratic governance, um, doing everything possible to achieve uh, universal enfranchisement, getting rid of felon disenfranchisement laws, etc. So that as a both principle, like that is a good in and of itself that should be aimed for, even if it helped conservatives would still be something you should do. <laughs> um, but also from a Machiavellian standpoint, or just a, a sheer matter of political strategy, um, you know, will empower, uh, you know, forces that are within the broad center left coalition in American life. So, yes, they have to think more about that. I think you're seeing a turn towards thinking about uh, more about that. And I think more generally, people sort of viewing things in structural senses as they start to work through what exactly I think the solidification of Trump and the Republican Party as a sort of coherent and unified coalition and threat to the center left is forcing people to think more comprehensively and structurally about what has to be done. Chris Hayes is the host of All In with Chris Hayes, which airs weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC and the new podcast, Why Is This Happening?, which is the second best podcast you can download. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Chris. All right. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to extra engineering help this week from Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios and Lucy Wang in New York. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner. Thanks for listening.